well, a half hour after the seventh seal was unsealed and kind of heaven came to an abrupt silence in kind of reverent awe of what God was going to do. And we're picking up here um, after that time. I'm going to read verses 2 to 12. And I saw seven angels who stand before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. Another angel who had a golden censer came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. The smoke of the incense, together with the prayers of the saints, went up before God from the angel's hand. The angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and hurled it on the earth. And there came peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Then the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to sound them. The first angel sounded his trumpet, and there came hail and fire mixed with blood, and it was hurled down upon the earth. A third of the earth was burned up. A third of the trees were burned up, and all the grass was burned up. The second angel sounded his trumpet, and something like a huge mountain all ablaze was thrown into the sea. A third of the sea turned into blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. The third angel sounded his trumpet, and a great star, blazing like a torch, fell from the sky on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters turned bitter, and many people died from the waters that had become bitter. The fourth angel sounded his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, a third of the moon and a third of the stars, so that a third of them turned dark. A third of the day was was without light, and also a third of the night. Last week, when we were doing the seals, uh, we just examined how the first four seals showed a certain general kind of affliction of, of, of general evil, man-to-man evil on the earth. But that's kind of the first birth pains of the end would be a time when... when the evil of man would visit itself upon one another. And we talked about that in some very real way. We are amidst that sort of a time. We're amidst a time where violence and conquest and, and famine and pestilence and these things, many of which are preventable, but because of our own sinfulness, are propagated from among the people of the earth. But we talked about how after the fourth seal, those four horsemen, there came a moment where there were the prayers of the saints who had been martyred and beheaded. And they cried out, How long, Sovereign Lord, holy and true, is this going to go on? To which the Lord said, A little longer, it's going to get worse, more have to die. And then kind of the sky fell, so to speak, in the sixth seal. Well, one of the reasons I think that, that um, the trumpets fit here is, first of all, what precipitates the trumpets? It's the prayers of the saints. And so you might think of the prayers of the saints in 8, 2, 3, 4 are, in a sense, the fifth seal. And then what ends up happening is the, the, sixth, the seven trumpets begin to unfold the increasing 
increasing severity of the tribulation that's experienced by mankind. So in the, in the horsemen, do you remember the fraction of the people that were to lose their lives? Do you remember anybody? One quarter. That's what I said, one quarter. The idea was this, these op- the opening introduction of the end with the four horsemen would account for, in some spiritual fractional sense, a quarter of the populace. Well, now we're dealing with what? What fraction are we dealing with now? A third. There's a greater sense of severity that's going on, that, that things have, in, in one sense, cooked up. And as we continue through the trumpets, they're going to get significantly more intense. These first four are actually fairly light compared to the next two or three. And so we see it's caused by the prayers. It's of a greater degree of severity. And and, and that's why I I kind of place it there. Now, there's a lot more reasons why I put it there. It'll have to wait till April 1st. Uh, So come to April 1st. By the way, I have had so many conversations with people about May 21st. Is the world going to end on May 21st? And either some of you have dealt with anxiety about that, or you have friends and co-workers who they don't want to talk about religion, but they want to talk about May 21st. You know, April 1st, our little time here that evening, that's a great place. I will work to make that very inviting. If you will consider maybe inviting somebody who wants to talk about that, but may not be all that interested in talking about Christianity. Maybe that's a great place. It'll be our own version of the open forum. And we'll kind of wrestle through what's being, what the scriptures say about, about the end. And... Uh, there's my last pitch on that. Okay, let's look a little bit at these, at these, what unfolds from the trumpets. First of all, these trumpets. Why trumpets? Well, I would say the, the first reason is trumpets in, in Scripture or in life initiate action. That's what you should, at least one of the significant things you should take away is, is God is actually doing these things. The trumpet in heaven is being blown and something's happening. When you're in an army and it's time to charge, somebody blows a trumpet and people charge. It initiates action. When it's time to retreat, they blow the same trumpet and people retreat. That's how it works. In, in the temple days, when it was time to call the people to repentance, they would blow a trumpet. When the people of Israel marched around Jericho seven times, they did what? They took out the trumpets and they blew them loudly. These trumpets ha- have an attitude or a meaning of initiating real action. So, so what, we're being, what we're seeing here is that, that what's unfolding from the prayers of the saints is that God's responding with action. And we see these trumpets come in the form of, they're supernatural, but they're natural in a, in a way. I mean, it's not like the horseman, where the horseman was the evil of one man being inflicted upon another conquest or violence or hunger, these sorts of things, these things are actually falling from, you know, in a spiritual, symbolic sense, they're falling from the sky. In fact, the image that's given to us in the fifth verse is this angel grabbing the censer with our prayers in it, and what's he doing? He's hurling it down at the earth. And then what comes out of that with these four trumpets are things that are falling. It's the whole idea is almost as though this is the falling judgment of God, and they are, they're not general kinds of evils, they're unique They're unique tribulations. They're the kinds of things that would draw a people to a greater sense of spirituality. In other words, if you were in Japan three and a half weeks ago and you 
bumped into a, like a fender bender with somebody else, you might get it out of your car and yell at each other, and there'd be that general sort of evil, right? And nobody would ever look at that and say, well, there must be a God. That's just the evilness of man being inflicted upon one another. But when the tsunami hits, people look up. Because no man is responsible for that. And that's kind of what's happening here. Is, is It's ratcheting up, not just in the way that of the severity, but it's ratcheting up in the sense of the origin of the tribulation. It's coming from, from God. And it's falling down on the whole world. The whole world is experiencing this. And I believe the church is part of that. And then things change. Look with me in the 13th verse. Just verse 13. As I watched... I heard an eagle that was flying in midair call out in a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth because of the trumpet blasts about to be sounded by the other three angels. Woe. Woe in Scripture is really bad. That's really bad. When, when there's a woe proclaimed in Scripture, it's not talking about tribulation. The kind of what's behind the woe is damnation. It's wrath. It's not difficulty. It's God's judging wrath that's coming and, be, and it's going to be inflicted upon people. That's what woe means. Woe is, has to do with the ultimate wrath of God or, or judgment. And a good example is, since we've taught Habakkuk recently, if you think back to the book of Habakkuk, the prophet calls out to the Lord. He says, Lord, why, is, why are our people so evil and you're not doing anything about it? They're supposed to be God's people and you're not doing anything about it. To which the Lord responds, well, I will do something about it. I will judge them with the Babylonians. To which Habakkuk says, we, how can you do that? You're going to judge us with people that are worse than us? They, they don't even acknowledge you. They're truly godless. They are your enemies. To which the Lord says, I will take care of them in my own way. And after that, guess what follows? It's a series of five woes against Babylon. In other words, kind of what's being expressed is, my people Israel are sinful and I'm going to bring kind of earthly challenges and tribulations on them so that I might draw them back towards me, so that I might purify them. Things that are happening in time, but the Babylonians they are going to be utterly destroyed. Woe to them who are my enemies, is the way the Lord speaks. And so the punishments are, it's, it's a difference in kind, not just degree, but kind. One of these is, is kind of a punishment like discipline, or a punishment as a consequence for sinfulness. The other one has an eternal significance to it. I mean, the f- damnation is in it. Eternal is in it. This is a kind of ideas. There's one time when Jesus is eating with the, with the Pharisees and they begin to voice some of their self-righteous statements and he goes on this rampage and he starts to say, woe to you who you tithe. You tithe out of your checkbook like exactly one-tenth of everything and he says, and you're blind to the injustice around you. He says, woe to you who walk around indicting the sinfulness of people but not drawing them towards righteousness. He says, you let people trample on you like you're an unmarked grave. 
is the phrase he uses. As though, as though they walk around and, and people stumble and they go, Ha! You made another mistake. You're unclean and you're sinful. And he says, Woe to you. And the result of that entire meal is that the Pharisees walk away and say, We have to take care of this guy. Because he's essentially proclaiming, You are not of God. With the woe. And so we should expect to see that these next trumpets have in them not just a greater degree of severity, but a different kind of expression. Let's see. You want to see? Let's see. What I want you to do is as we begin to read 9, we're going to read 9, 1 to 12. I want you to keep an eye out for a certain kind of signature identifiers that this is a unique kind of wrath. Okay, let's read. The fifth angel sounded his trumpet, and I saw a star that had fallen from the sky to the earth. The star was given the key to the shaft of the abyss. When he opened the abyss, smoke rose from it like smoke from a gigantic furnace. The sun and the sky were darkened by the smoke from the abyss, and out of the smoke locusts came down upon the earth and were given power like that of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any tree, plant or tree, but only those who had, did not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were not given the power to kill them, but only to torture them for five months. And the agony they suffered was like that of the sting of a scorpion when it strikes a man. During those days, men will seek death, but will not find it. They will long to die, but death will elude them. I'm going to tell you what these locusts look like in a second. We're going to read. Remember, don't get lost in the details. I want you to feel what they look like. Okay? So, so keep, keep your distance on this. The locusts looked like horses prepared for battle. On their heads they wore something like crowns of gold, and their faces resembled human faces. Their hair was like that of woman's hair, and their teeth were like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like the breastplates of iron, and the sounds of their wings was like the thundering of many horses and chariots rushing into battle. They had tails and stings like scorpions. And in their tails they had the power to torment people for five months. They had as king over them the angel of the abyss, whose name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek, Apollyon, which means destroyer. The first woe is past. Two other woes are yet to come. So we talked about the idea of woe. It's going to be continually developed through the rest of the book because as we slowly progress towards the end, God's kind of earthly judgments are going to begin to kind of directed more towards eternal wrath. But did you notice some of the unique elements of this, this woe versus the other ones? The other ones were very general. The other ones fell on all the earth. Did this fall on all the earth? Geographically it did, but did every single person experience the torment and wrath of these demonic beasts? No. No. Right? These are, these are whatever they really are. You know, I, I, I tend to look at this and I say, if they're real, it's really bad. If this is symbolic, it's symbolic of something that's really, really bad. 
whatever this really bad thing that's coming out of hell or the abyss and it's being led by some kind of demon and it's being allowed to inflict great and extreme torment on the people of the earth, it is not permitted to touch or harm anyone who bears the seal of the Lamb. In other words, this is truly some kind of echo of wrath in the sense that, remember we talked about the sealing of of God's faithful. The sealing of God's faithful does not protect us from tribulation. The sealing of God's faithful protects us from God's wrath. And it's right here that the sealing of God's people comes in and protects them from these, cre- these creatures or from this evil force or whatever it is that's inflicting great harm on mankind, they cannot touch the people of God. Why do you think this God would do that? You know, there's a few things that are unique here. First of all is the church, the people of God are present and witnessing this. We're going to watch that. We have to wrestle through the fact that something, however little or figurative this is, something of this great extreme severity is going to be visited upon people we love who do not love God. And we'll be watching. So there's that kind of unique element. But there's also this unique element of the fact that the infliction and the pain that's brought on these people does not, is not a pain to death, is it? Nobody's dying from it. In fact, it says they long to die and they can't. And so the, the, the reality is, is that the wrath that's being visited upon them is, brings them to this great place of severe pain, but God is still preserving their life. Why would he do that? Last week, we kind of approached this question from the side of the church. We said, why would the church be left during a tribulation? Why would the church, why would God leave the church or God's people on the earth when he was kind of allowing great, great, terrible things to happen to it, when, he, when the trumpets were blowing? Why do we have to be there as the trumpets blow, was the question. And the thought was, is because we have to be there so that if, if and when people turn and recognize God, There might be a community that's preaching and witnessing of the truth and goodness of God to bring the message of goodness to them. I would say, I would add to that this Sunday. I would say, in addition to that, what we see is that God himself, in the way he seems to be ratcheting up the the torments and the judgment, is doing it in such a way that he's trying to turn the eyes of the world onto himself. So the first time it happens, it's this general kind of evil, the horseman, right? It's violence, it's oppression, it's famine. These sorts of things draw some people to turn to God. They go, why is the world so messed up? They, they, they lose faith in their governments. They lose faith in the systems that are promised. They lose faith in the bureaucracy. They lose faith in their security. All of these things, and they begin to look places. That's kind of a first level of the way God draws people to himself, that sin in its own way draws us. It's it's God's own way sometimes of wooing us back towards him is the brokenness in our own life causes us to turn. That's the first thing we saw. Then he made made it more extreme. After these general evils was these evils that were coming from the heavens 
or these supernaturally natural events, these things that would naturally cause us to look up and go, there must be a God, or why is this happening? These sorts of things. Now God's done something even more significant. It's not simply a generic or general evil, nor is it a unique evil, kind of a divine evil. This one is selective. If you were under the torment of these demons, you would notice that your cousin is not. Your cousin, who is being persecuted, by the way, for his faithlessness, or your cousin who has confessed Jesus Christ, or these sorts of things, that he who stands out like a sore thumb day in and day out of the marketplace, that, that he is walking around healthy. He might even be ministering to you. God uses these incremental woes, these incremental steps to draw us to himself. His goal is repentance. He's using wrath for the purpose of repentance. Let me read, keep reading and I'll show, you, I'll show you some more. Let's read uh, the rest of 9. Now the implication in Scripture is that this next trumpet affects the godless again and not, the, not those who are sealed. So the, from this point on, these woes are not falling on those who are sealed. Now listen to this. The sixth angel sounded his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the horns of the golden altar that is before God. It's, it's said to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates, and the four angels who had been kept ready for this very hour and day and month and year were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of the mounted troops was 200 million. I heard their number. Now again, take the description apocalyptically. The horses and the riders I saw in my vision looked like this. Their breastplates were fiery red, dark blue and yellow as sulfur. The heads of the horses resembled the heads of lions, and out of their mouths came fire, smoke, and sulfur. A third of mankind was killed by the three plagues of fire, smoke, and sulfur that came out of their mouths. The power of the horses was in their mouths and in their tails, for their tails were like snakes having heads with which they inflict injury. Now listen. The rest of mankind that were not killed by these plagues still did not repent of the work of their hands. They did not stop worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze, stone and wood, idols they cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders, their magic arts, their sexual immorality, or their thefts. Don't you see what God's doing here? He's incrementally, He's incrementally, even with the use of His wrath, trying to draw people. He's doing, he's doing two things. He's doing two things. First of all, He's preaching the gospel in the most extreme light. He's preaching the good news by bringing the bad news in an incremental way. Many of us as parents sometimes have to do this. Right? When the good news doesn't work, we have to try a different tactic, which is, well, how about I start with the bad news and draw my children towards righteousness that way? That's what the Lord's doing. Is In one sense, He's He's showing this, this is his most extreme example of evangelism. Is, 
is I will, I will allow the evil of, of uh, the demonic evil of the world to kind of reap a whirlwind on itself. I'll leave my people there, and hopefully people will turn, but still they will not repent. That's the idea, is, is that God's made an effort. He's making an effort to draw people to him. The second thing that he's doing is he's eliminating any doubt in your mind and in my mind that there was something that God could have done to draw people to himself. Right? When the end comes and we're on our way to heaven, there's nobody who's going to say, well, God, what if you did that? Right? What has God not done? What has he not done for you or for your friend or for, or, for, or for all of mankind? By this point, is there anything that God has not done to display his power, his righteousness, his holiness, his grace, his mercy, and his wrath? It's all been shown. There's nothing. We, we, we won't be able to brainstorm, well, if God had only done this, well, then the whole world would have converted. God has given us his message in peace. And we have denied it. God has sent his prophets to his people. And they have killed their prophets. The testimony of his presence through our conscience and through the natural world. The Lord says, you know, through the things you see, they testify of my immutable qualities, and yet you have chosen not to recognize me. He's tried it there, and there's been denial. His very own son, Jesus Christ, is sent to the earth, who spoke truth, he worked wonders among his people, and even then they denied him. He gave the church, and he put the spirit in the church, and he gave the holy word to the church to preach the good news of Jesus Christ and the world has denied him. Everywhere you look, there's been denial of the ways that God has tried to preach and show his grace and draw people to himself, draw all men to himself, every nation, tongue, tribe, and people to himself. Everywhere that he has tried that, there has been denial. Even in this last woe, where the scourge of demonic evil itself is played out. It's funny, it says that after all of that, it says they continued to worship the demons. You know, we, 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 partner, we partner in such demonic ways with things of this world that do not love us like we love them. This is how it's going to end that should fill us with urgency. Not because it's right around the corner necessarily. Not because we have to do the Lord's work, but because we see the extremity that God goes through to draw people to himself. So should we not mirror that? Should we not model that? Should we not follow after that? I'll close with this idea. Sometimes this is difficult. And by the way, in a few Sundays, we're going to, have to, we're going to deal with a theology of wrath because these are difficult concepts that we rarely talk about in church today. And so it's, it's enough that people have to hear them. We have to, we have to correct our theology of wrath, I think. And that's coming in a few Sundays. But, but these images and these stories are so bizarre sometimes, and they're so unique, and they're so strange, that they don't really have categories to fit in our minds. And so what I want to do is I want to offer you a very real, practical template that God has given us, in history, that is modeling this. So a way that, an easy way to think about what's happening here. Because some of the imagery makes it hard to think about it here. And, and with that, I would call, I would ask you to remember 
the story of Moses. This is the story of this is the story of the Exodus, just being told in an apocalyptic way. What's the beginning of the story of Exodus? It's a, it is a group of God's people who are in a land that is not their own, who come under the oppression of the prince of their world. Right? That's the starting point. That they're living in a place where they're under the oppression of the, of the prince of that world and that Pharaoh begins to, to buckle down on them and to persecute them. It's the evils of mankind that are being waged on the people of God and that the people of God are being oppressed to such a point that they do what? In the fifth seal, they cry out to God, How long, O Lord, sovereign and just, are you going to allow this to happen? This is the story of Exodus. And the Lord says, He calls Moses and He says, I have heard the what of my people? The cry of my people. And I am sending you to rescue them. Do you see the story? And so Moses goes and He says, Let my people go. And then through that time, did God just snap His fingers and extract the people of God to the east side of the Red Sea? No. In fact, they, they remained in Egypt and they endured the, many of the hardships in Egypt, partly the, the plagues of God, but also partly the wrath of the Pharaoh. Moses showed up the first time. He said, let my people go. Pharaoh said, not only no, but I'm doubling their work and they're going to make bricks without straw. The, the tribulation of God's people increased during this time. And then God began to bring plagues from the sky. They began to fall on them, just like the sixth seal. Just like the six trumpets, these plagues begin to fall each time, beginning to highlight the sovereignty of God over the, the, the partial demonic powers of Egypt. You know, in fact, it starts exactly the same way. It starts with very general kinds of plagues that Pharaoh could duplicate. And then what happens? Then it becomes unique plagues that Pharaoh cannot duplicate. And then what does becomes? Then it becomes selective plagues. Not only that Pharaoh cannot duplicate, but that do not affect the people of God living in the land of Goshen. The exact pattern is followed of God judging and saying, do you see my power now? And Pharaoh rejecting it. And then judging it in a more extreme way that's unique. Do you see my power now? And Pharaoh rejecting it. And finally saying, I'm going to, use, I'm going to subject it to you, but not to my people, so that you know that I am their God, that I have a particular love for them, and that they will not experience my ultimate wrath. And the story ends with God finally drawing his people out of the land and destroying the enemy in the Red Sea. The book of Revelation is cosmic exodus. That's what it is. It's more colorful. It's apocalyptic. But this is the story. The question is, are you an Egyptian? Or are you the people of God?